Well, friends, today we are wrapping up chapter 3 of 1 John. And so go ahead right now, if you brought your Bibles with you, if you're following along in those Bibles in your pews, go ahead and, and make sure you, you, you pull op- open the, the book of 1 John and the New Testament. Pull it up on your phone if you can. We're going to be wrapping up the third chapter of 1 John. And this whole chapter has been about love and the distinction of between genuine love and hate. And ultimately, what, how does the distinction between what is true, genuine Christian love and ultimately what is not, how does that inform who we are as followers of Jesus? In fact, throughout the letter of 1 John, and perhaps you've noticed this as, as we've been reading through this all summer long, you'll notice that John, in writing this letter, is very, very blunt with his language. He's not afraid to just say what exactly needs to be said. And his point, especially in chapter 3, is to say that you, just to say that you are a Jesus follower is not enough to prove that you are a Jesus follower. If you are someone who says you follow Jesus, you have to be able to show that there's evidence behind it. You can't just say that you're a Jesus follower. You can't just go to church and make that enough to say that you're a Jesus follower. According to John, what makes you an authentic follower of Jesus is when your faith in Jesus results in genuine love for others. What makes you a Jesus follower is when your faith in Jesus results in genuine love for others. In fact, John would even go so far as to say, if you are not loving one another as Jesus loved us, there's a really good reason to question whether or not your faith is really in Jesus. You might be doing the right things, but if your faith is not fully resulting in genuine love for others, your faith might actually be in something else, not in the Jesus whom we worship and serve. Now, because the love that we have for one another reflects the love of God, that is what shows whether you really know God, right? The love that we show for one another is meant to be a reflection of God's love for us, which means our love for one another shows whether we actually know God's love for us in the first place. And so by implication, as we've been kind of working through 1 John, we could almost say that John is saying to us that the people here in Westmoreland County, the people who live in and around this region, in and around our lives, they will know that we are Christians. How's the old song finish? By our love. They will know we are Christians by our love, and which means that every single one of us has to wrestle this question to the ground, does my love for others reflect the love of Jesus? Does my love for other people reflect the love of Jesus? If somebody could be a fly on the wall of my life and witness my love towards others, would they say, yep, that is somebody who has experienced the love of Jesus? Now, these are hard questions. And John realizes that there's actually a risk in asking questions like this. Because if we're not careful, when we ask these questions, if we're not careful, we actually might end up putting ourselves at the center of the universe. (laughs) Making theology all about ourselves and our feelings and our emotions. And this has led to some Christians throughout history to actually be filled with anxiety. When they ask these hard questions that they have to ask, like John's talking about, it can sometimes lead to feeling all sorts of uncertainty and anxiety because then they don't know whether or not they've actually been saved. They don't know, oh no, have I actually experienced God's love? Have I actually experienced God's forgiveness? Am I actually saved and know that I will spend eternity with God? And so what John does next in chapter 3 is he moves to that type of, that question. He addresses the question whether or not it is indeed possible to know with certainty that you are saved. 
that you are forgiven, that you are justified by God. So we're going to take a look at 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be starting with verse 19. So if you're in your Bibles, follow along. I'm going to be reading from chapter 3, starting with verse 19 till the end of the chapter, which is verse 24. 1 John 3, 19 through 24, John writes, This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. If our hearts condemn us, well, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, will we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of, the son, of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. So as I said, in this passage, John is answering the question whether or not we can know that we are saved. Can we know that God has saved us and forgiven us. John is reassuring his readers that the answer to that question is yes. You can indeed be confident that you are saved. Now, knowing that you are saved and forgiven by God is then what leads to a confident peace when you are in his presence. Knowing that you are loved by God, knowing that God forgives you, knowing that you are someone whom God has washed away those sins and he sees you with love and grace and has welcomed you into his family, knowing that is what leads to being able to have a confident peace when you are in God's presence. Because without that sense of peace, without that sense of confident peace, our relationship with God will always be defined by fear. Right, This unknowing and entering into God's presence, an unhealthy fear of, oh no, what am I going to do? You know, when I, think of it like this. When I, when I was a kid, I was once playing, some, I was playing baseball out in my backyard. I wasn't that good, but I still tried. And when I was throwing this baseball up in the, in the air, and I would try to swing and hit it for a little bit, and then I'd run and catch it and throw it up, well, guess what ended up happening? At one point, I hit that baseball. It took a wrong bounce. It ricocheted off something else and went straight into our window. And I broke a window. And I remember this, the immediate reaction that I had when I saw that window break. And for those of you who know me, this isn't surprising. I was terrified. Oh, no, what's dad going to say, right? And I, and I started getting all worked up and anxious. So when, when dad gets home from work, I'm going to have to tell him that I broke the window. And I was so worried, so nervous, and I kept rehearsing that, that, that thing. Those of you who are parents probably have seen some of your kids have those sorts of fears as well. What am I going to do when I tell? I'm so worried, I'm so afraid. Well, anyway, dad gets home. And when dad gets home, he sees the window. And I'm so terrified how he's going to react and what he's going to say to me. And he looks at me and he says, Ben, it's just a window. I love you. And in that moment, those words melted away all of my fear. Why? Because I was confident that he loved me. Confident suddenly that he loved me no matter what, which set me at rest, at ease in my dad's presence. You know, when it comes to our relationship with God, many of us need that type of 
experience, reassurance, right? This sense of knowing that we are able to be at ease in God's presence. All of us are going to have moments in our lives when we feel fear towards God, unsure of whether or not he truly loves us and accepts us. All of us are going to have times where we're terrified to be in God's presence, unsure of whether he could actually forgive us. For some of us, it might be because of memories and feelings of past guilt, things that we've done in our life. For some of us, it might be because of the ongoing, present, and current struggle of trying to love other people, and we just can't seem to, to overcome or figure out how the best way to love it, and as a result, we think that we must be failing God. For some of us, it might be future mistakes that you will make one day that right here today, you never in a million years thought that you would ever make. But when you do, will I ever be forgiven by God? These, those things, they can steal confidence away from us. Steal this confidence as to whether God really loves me or forgives me. And this issue, in Christian theology, this issue that we're describing is known as the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine of assurance. How can I be assured that I'm really saved? How can I be assured that God really does forgive me? It's the doctrine of, of Christian assurance that says in our theology that there, that, that, that there is possible for our hearts to enter God's presence and be at rest, to be at ease, even in the midst of uncertainty created by the fickleness of our hearts and the wickedness of our sin, that it is indeed possible to be at rest in God's presence. So take a look at what John says in verse 19. 1 John 3, 19. This is the very first verse of this passage. You see what he says here. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts, what? At rest in his presence. Maybe you want to underline that phrase, right? That idea of being at rest in his presence. Or maybe you want to circle the words know and belong and truth. These words, this, this verse is saying this, this is how we can know, we can truly know that, this, that we're a part of this and that we are at rest in God's presence. Now notice, the first part of this verse has John declaring that we can have a certain knowledge about our salvation. And then, then, now notice, John says, know, see, know that we belong to the truth. But then he, then right after that, he moves on to this idea of having our hearts at rest. You see, what John's doing here is he's connecting the you know, two parts of what it means to be human. The, the head knowledge and the heart knowledge, right? This ability to know something with our minds and with our heads, and then connecting it to the true assurance that our hearts are at rest in our presence. Just because you have head knowledge that you belong to Jesus does not automatically give you the heart knowledge of assurance. Just because you have a head knowledge that you are a Christian doesn't automatically give us a heart knowledge that we are truly at rest in God's presence. Yeah, we feel this, many of us have felt this way whenever you're driving somewhere that you haven't been before, right? And you're driving down the highway and you know and you're with head knowledge that you're going the right direction. You know that you're heading in the right direction and that you're moving yourself closer to the right place. But there's still this feeling of uncertainty. <laughs> Am I actually in the right location? I know I'm supposed to be driving on 70 West, but I'm not sure if I'm really in the right location. It's trying to bring together that sense of confident head knowledge with the full rest and assurance of knowing that I'm in the right place. 
John wants us to know that you can indeed know in your heart and then also be at rest that you are saved. Now, if you're, looking, if you're following along in your Bible, maybe you want to underline that phrase, at rest. Because that phrase, at rest, in God's presence, literally means to assure. That's where the idea of assurance comes from. This sense of being at rest. To be so confident in something that you can be so assured of its truth and therefore be at peace, at rest. When your heart is assured of something, you find rest, you find peace. Right? There's times when you, know, you hear information or you see something on the news or somebody tells you about something that's true or fact, but you don't feel assured. You're not yet sure whether you can be fully confident in this piece of information and you will not be at rest, you will not be at peace until you have fully fact-checked that information and then you can step, step back and rest and know that yes, this is indeed the truth. You need to set your heart at rest. You need assurance. Well, as John kind of continues to wrestle with this, he then asks, well, where does this assurance come from? Where do we get it from? And that's what John tackles next in verse 20. So take a look at verse 20. He says, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. We're going to stop there. Verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Look, John knows that there are times when our hearts will condemn us. And here's what he means. There are times... That even though we might know with our heads that God loves us, our hearts convince us otherwise. It's that nagging feeling. That it's, it's, it's that quiet sense that just won't go away. That we've done something in our lives that makes us unworthy to be loved by God. And our hearts, you know... Uh, convince us or remind us or rehearse in our hearts and our minds over and over and over again that you can't possibly be loved by God because of what you've done or because of who you are or because of what you're struggling with or because of the fears that you might have or because and on and on and on and on. Many times our hearts intentionally or unintentionally or naturally, whatever the case might be, actually try to condemn us by saying to us, we ourselves, it's the sense of looking in the mirror and, we're, and we like convince ourselves that we are not worthy to be in God's presence. Our hearts condemn us. And as that feeling grows, we end up carrying with us enormous amounts of guilt and shame and fear and anxiety about whether or not God could actually love and forgive us in the first place. And it doesn't matter how, many, how much information we know about God or we know about the Bible. We keep coming back to this place of feeling like, yes, but it couldn't be me. Yes, but you don't know what I've done. Yes, but, but if God really knew how, what I was going through or what I had done, right, and on and on and on. We're doing all the right things, trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to grow closer to him, but these past sins or mistakes or struggles or failures continue to haunt us, overwhelming us with feelings of guilt. Does God really love me? Does God really forgive me? Now, I don't know about you, but I've talked with, with many, many people that are actually terrified to walk into a church building, let alone have a conversation with another Christian. They're terrified to walk into the physical structure of a church building itself because they're so convinced that they're not worthy to be in such a space. I've had conversations with people that are 
continue to carry guilt of their past mistakes, deeply wondering whether God could forgive them. I've had conversations, I remember having a conversation with a, with a gentleman who once told me on and on and on, I would say, does God love you? He'd say, yes. Does God forgive you? He'd say, yes. And, and then I would say, then can you feel at rest in God's presence? And he'd say, no. And I'd say, why? And he'd said, because, well, God has to love me. That's just his job. He has to forgive me. That's just his job. But he doesn't really want to. <laughs> And we just enter into this constant sense of nagging anxiety and uncertainty as to whether I could actually be loved and, and embraced and welcomed by God. But here's what John is saying. Here's what he's trying to get at here in verse 20. You may not feel worthy. Your heart may condemn you. But the decision as to whether you deserve to stand before God loved and forgiven, is not up to you in your heart. The feelings in your heart do not decide whether or not you are actually indeed good enough. Why? He says in verse 20, God is greater than your hearts. God is greater than your heart. God decides if you are worthy enough, not you. God decides whether or not you are loved, saved, forgiven, and welcome to his family, not you. God is the one who determines whether you are worthy to be in his presence and can be at rest. Not you. God is greater than our hearts. Your hearts may condemn you, but God is greater than your hearts. The emotions of fear and unworthiness and guilt, yes, they are strong. God is stronger, says John. Sometimes our hearts rightly condemn us. I call that our conscience, right? They right? It rightly condemns us and says, you are not in the right. You are not doing something that is worthy to be before God. But even though that is, they do not, our hearts do not have the power and the authority to redeem us and to forgive us. Only God has that power and that authority to forgive and redeem us. God's grace and comfort in salvation, God's grace and assurance of our salvation is greater than our own self-condemnation. Every time you and I fail to love, we are given assurance that we can confess our sins to God and know that God will righteously forgive us. Our salvation is not lost. Our sin is forgiven. Our sin as believers is not greater than God's power to forgive. If you remember one thing from this message today, remember that. Your heart is not the one that determines whether or not you are worthy to enter into God's presence. Only God determines that. Now notice too, God then, or excuse me, John then says that God knows everything. Do you see that at the end of verse 20? He says, for God knows everything. John isn't just throwing some random statement in here, you know, like that God is this all-knowing brainiac. Right? It's not just some random theological statement. Oh, yeah, by the way, God knows everything. It's not like John is saying that God knows the, you know, the, all of the digits of pi or how many fish are in the sea or how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. That's not John's point here. What John is trying to say is that, look, God, he already knows all about your past sins he knows all about the present sins you're struggling with, and he already knows the sins you're going to commit in the future. And he's already decided that he still loves you. He has already decided that you are worth loving regardless of all of the things that you might have already convinced and think that makes you not worthy. Your sin is not surprising to God. He knows everything. 
John's trying to reassure you and I and everyone around us that God already knows everything about you. And so even when your heart condemns you, God is saying, look, I already know all of the reasons why you think that your heart is or that you're not good enough. But I've already chosen to love and forgive you anyway. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God knows everything and he's already decided that you are worth it. But, but the problem is some of us, we have these misconceptions of who God is and what God is like. You know, some of us, we treat God as if he's this mean, crotchety old grandparent that we're trying to hide all of our bad behavior from, right? Like some college student who, who's terrified to tell grandma how they really spent their time while they were at school because they're afraid that then, you know, grandma's never going to forgive me if she knew what I really did. But friends, God is not some delicate, pretentious grandma. God's the creator of the universe, and he knows all things. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you did. He knows how you spent your time, and he still chooses to love you anyway. God already knows, and in fact, he already died for you. He already made the decision that you are worth dying for, even before you knew that there was a God in the first place. Now, as John moves us through these verses, we get to verse 21. And John begins to now address, you could say, the opposite situation. Times when our hearts don't condemn us, right? Times when we know that we're actually doing exactly what we're called to do in God's will. And so he takes this idea on and he leads us from that position directly into the subject of prayer. Let's take a look again at these verses. 1 John 3, I'm going to start with 21. You're only going to, you're going to see verse 22 up on the screen, but I'm going to read from 21 and then into it, okay? So John writes, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So first, John is trying to tackle this idea of there's times when we don't feel worthy before God and we know we've messed up. How do, can we still be confident that God loves us? And his answer is yes. Why? Because we don't make that decision. God does. God knows all things and he's already decided that you're worth loving and you are worth it, worth it regardless. Next, he says, well, what about those times when we know we are actually living in God's will and doing the right thing? We know that we are loving sacrificially. We're serving humbly. We're living as Jesus commanded us to live. And when we do, says John, rejoice in that. Be grateful that you're in a place where you're fully obeying Jesus. Those moments when you know in the depths of your being that you're actually doing what God has called you to do. When that happens, that can also fill us with confidence before God. Imagine yourself standing before the throne and it's hearing God's words say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have indeed been faithful with a little and now you can be faithful with much. This sense of confidence that we are truly obeying Christ. 
as the work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit continues to be at work in us, and this is why it requires a day-by-day surrender, a day-by-day of taking that next right step constantly, little by little, as the Holy Spirit continues to work in you and move you forward and closer and closer to the heart of Jesus, you will become more and more like Jesus, living and loving in the way that Jesus calls us to live and love. And when you know that you are living obediently before God, it fills us with confidence. And then John's, follow the, connect the dots here. When we know we're fully obeying God, it fills us with confidence. And that confidence leads us to be able to make bold requests to God. A request that we know God will hear and answer. So you'll see maybe there in verse 22, right? John talks about this idea of receiving and asking for anything. You know, go ahead and circle, underline those words if you wish. We can have assurance and confidence that God will respond to our prayers. But notice, it doesn't stop there, does it? What does John say at the second part of verse 22? Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. We can be bold and confident before God in our prayer life. Why? Because we are keeping God's commands and do what pleases Him. So these two phrases, doing what God commands and and doing what pleases God, they're trying to get at the same basic principle that as Jesus followers, we are called to obey God and our obedience then pleases God. Now, don't misunderstand what John is saying. That doesn't mean that your obedience to God obligates God to automatically answer any prayer that you throw up to God. But when we are fully obeying God, that means that we are in a right relationship with God. Okay, Obedience is a sign of right relationship. If you're fully obeying God, it means that you are in a right relationship with God. And because you are in a right relationship with God, God responds to our prayers. Think of it this way. You do not obey God in order to get God to answer your prayers. You obey God, and when you do, your prayers become ones that God naturally is pleased to answer. Let me say that again. You don't obey God in order to get God to answer your prayers. You obey God. And when you do, your prayers will naturally become ones that God is pleased to answer. So imagine, for example, a student who deeply wants to learn about some various subject matter, whatever, whatever the case. And so they decide to just fully surrender themselves to that subject, to learn more, to diligently obey their teacher, this teacher who is helping them grow in the process of, uh, and, and is committed to helping them learn. And that student is fully committed, fully bought in to trying to grow in the knowledge of this subject. Well, their actions in time will show the teacher as well that the teacher knows they're committed to learning. Well, what would happen if that student comes to this teacher with a request, asking the teacher to do something for them? The teacher knowing that this student is fully in obedience, committed to trying to grow in the knowledge of this subject, knows that these requests are coming from a pure motive and is in alignment with the teacher's wishes. And the student 
is so confidently in right relationship with the teacher that they know the teacher will honor their request. The teacher might say yes, the teacher might say no, the teacher might even say not yet. But that doesn't trouble the student because the student knows that they, are, they can fully trust that the teacher has their best interest at heart. Making a request to God, making prayers to God, begins long before you actually utter those words in a prayer. Our prayer life begins in our obedience to God. Our prayer life begins in the deep commitment to keep God's commands and to do what pleases Him. You don't obey God in order to get Him to answer your prayers. You obey God, and when you do, your prayers naturally become ones that God is pleased to answer. So next, in the midst of all this, John anticipates. Okay, people hear this, and they think, and they want to know, Okay, I get it. I'm supposed to obey God and do what pleases Him. And, and in the midst of this confidence that I can truly know I am saved and I and obey God. And next people want to know, well, what does that mean, John? What does it mean to obey God? What does obedience look like? And that's what John then tackles in verse 23. So go ahead and take a look at verse 23 in your Bibles. The first thing that John says when it comes to obedience is to do this. Obey, obeying God is first to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. You might be thinking, well, that sounds basic. Well, it is. But how many times do we mess up the basics, right? It starts here, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the first place in the entire letter that John uses the word believe. First place where he uses that word. And what does he mean by that word believe? He means it's a definitive, complete commitment it's an all-encompassing surrender, if you will, to who this man Jesus is. It's making a full commitment to follow this man as my Lord and as my Savior, believing that he really is indeed the Christ. He really is the Son of God. He really is who he claims to be. C.S. Lewis once argued that there's really only three options about what you believe about Jesus. Jesus claims to be God, the Son of God, the, the promised Messiah. And C.S. Lewis says, well, the options are either that Jesus was lying about who he was, that he was a lunatic and didn't know what he was talking about, or that he really was telling the truth. And it begs the question, well, then what do you believe? Who do you believe that Jesus is? John says to obey God and to plead, do what pleases him begins with really wrestling that question to the ground. What do I believe about Jesus? Is he indeed the Christ? The second aspect of obedience, according to John, it starts with belief in who Jesus is, which then leads right into, in verse 23, the command to love one another. The word love, again, that's the, the Greek word agape. And in Greek, this idea of agape love is a com complete and total resolute commitment to love another person through both your words and your actions. It's sacrificial. It's action-oriented. We're commanded to love our neighbors and our enemies. Throughout 1 John, he is adamant that belief in Jesus, right? If you really do believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then love for others is naturally tied to that belief. You can't do one without the other. On and on, you'll see this throughout 1 John. Belief in Jesus 
claiming to have right, right belief, claiming to have right doctrine, claiming to, say, to know all of the right things, has to be tied and connected to loving the other. So at the end of the day, bringing this back to the very beginning, how can we know we are saved? How do we know that we are indeed going in the right direction and that we are loved and forgiven and, and, and fully surrendered, by Je- surrendered to Jesus? Most of you can probably remember um, when you couldn't just go to any location by pulling out the GPS on your phone. You had to do it the old-fashioned way. Do you remember back in the day when if, if somebody didn't know where to go, you had to give them directions? Remember that? It's funny. It, that's a skill that people are forgetting to actually give directions because they were so used to the GPS, you ask for directions. They're like, uh-oh, uh, uh, turn that road, right? Back when Rachel and I first were, or when we first started dating in our, in our relationship, I remember we were quickly learning that we received directions differently. And I learned that Rachel, when it comes to giving directions, she's a landmark person. I'm not a landmark person. I need street names to know where I'm going, right? I don't know why. It's just the way I think. It's the way she thinks. And so I quickly learned that if I was trying to give Rachel directions to the church, I could not tell her to turn on clay and then take a left on South 2nd Street. I had to tell her, go up the hill and turn by the fire station, and you'll see the church, right? Now, I don't know which, which, what you are, whether you're a street person or a landmark person, but I learned that Rachel was a landmark person. John ends this section by giving us this radical and beautiful landmark that we are indeed where we need to be. And the landmark that he gives us is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Is the, is the Holy Spirit active and, pork and present in your life? Because that confirms that you are indeed in the right place. When you have the Spirit, it says in other places in Scripture that that is the seal, the sign, the, 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 the guarantee of your salvation. The presence of the Holy Spirit means that you will be ultimately bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And it leads to a real change in who you are, that you become day by day a new creation in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, confirming that you are indeed saved. It leads to this increasing desire to obey God and to love others. You find yourself actually wanting to figure out a way to love the people in your life that drive you crazy. And the more you do this, the more confident we become before God, resting in his presence, knowing that he loves us, knowing that we can be bold within his presence. And so today, all this week, I want to challenge you all to give God thanks for the assurance that he gives us, to ask God to fill your life and your heart with the landmark of the Holy Spirit and to pray for, for God to give you confident assurance. Many of you might still, to this very point in your life, be wondering, am I actually saved by God? Could he actually forgive me? And the answer is, yes, he can. For the assurance that God gives you, the courage to, gives you the courage to boldly declare that you know Jesus and you know his spirit and he is actively changing your life. And perhaps it will also give you the courage to declare with the great hymn writer, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, may you give us assurance that Jesus is ours. 
And Lord, in the midst of that assurance, would you fill our hearts with confidence and rest in your presence? Where we need to love others, Lord, would you reveal that to us? Where we need to believe in your Son, reveal that to us. And help us to commit ourselves to you in a fresh and unique way, day by day, step by step, moment by moment. Confident and assured of your love for us. Amen.